that, uh, that bumper literally sets the table for our sermon. You get it? It was real bad. It was real bad. Uh, so this morning we are in week four of a five-week series on feasts. Uh, these special days are prescribed in the Old Testament of the Bible for the nation of Israel. These feasts are days to stop, to remember, and to celebrate the work of God. Um, we have focused on Leviticus chapter 23 as our guide and have looked at Sabbath, at Passover, at the feasts of first fruits and of weeks. These days are marked with joyful celebration of God's work, his protection, his provision, and the product of his great care. These days are days when the people didn't work, but they gave all their focus to remembering and celebrating God's work at their, in their past, in their present, and the promise of his work in the future. These days came regularly for them. They were weekly, they were annually, and they were lived out through generations, over centuries. We've walked through these scenes of celebrations and we have ideas of scenes like that, of people gathered, of stories that are shared, of thanks being given. Each day seems to hold just a little piece of heaven. No striving, just stopping and remembering and celebrating. As we connect with God's purpose for these days, we seem to long for them. There's something unmodern and other feeling about days like this. Days where we understand our place in God's creation and order, where we look to him as our creator and our good, good father. Each of these feasts, they kind of work together. They're, they're like chapters building up in a great narrative. It's like a story that as it develops, it comes toward, uh, to greater understanding in the context of a grander story. But today, the feast that we look at, it's different from the others. It was a day to stop and remember, but their thoughts were not focused on God's work. Instead, their thoughts were actually focused on their own failures. It was a day marked with humility and sorrow, humility from recognizing their own ability to live in a way that did not cause pain and separation between themselves and God and sorrow because they recognized that their actions were offensive and could not be overlooked in the presence of a holy God. So today we're gonna to look at the Day of Atonement. We're gonna read in Leviticus chapter 23, if you look with me at verses 26 through 32. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, now on the 10th day of the seventh month is the Day of Atonement. It shall be for you a time of holy convocation and you shall afflict yourselves and present a food offering for the Lord. And you shall not do any work on that very day, for it is the day of atonement to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For whoever is not afflicted in that very day will be cut off from this people. And whoever does not work, who does any work on that day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall not do any work. It is a statute forever throughout your generation in all dwelling places. It is to be, it is to be, it is to you a Sabbath of solemn rest and you shall afflict yourselves on the ninth day of the month Beginning at evening, from evening to evening, you shall keep your Sabbath. So let's start off by trying to work toward an understanding of the Day of Atonement itself. As important as each of the feasts were to the people of Israel, this one, this one day in Israel's history, it really stood out among the rest. It was important. It was intended for remembrance, just like the others, but it was not filled with the sounds and smells of celebration. This day was not a day of celebration, but it was a day of reconciliation. This day, the day of atonement, was a day that was anticipated because it was so deeply needed. The day of atonement 
when atonement happened for God's people. So I'm gonna look, we're gonna look at four different kind of aspects of the day of atonement to just help us have a better understanding. The first is to understand what the word atone itself actually means. To atone means to cover, to cancel, to cleanse, forgive, pardon, or reconcile. I'm listing all these uh, adjectives because they each one hold a different meaning or context. It brings, the word atonement itself, it brings several different word pictures with it. It means to cover completely and fully. It means to cancel out like a debt. It means to cleanse, to forgive, to pardon, and to reconcile. On the day of atonement, God made a way for his people to have their sin covered and canceled out. He would cleanse, forgive, and pardon their sin, never to remember it again. On the day of atonement, God would reconcile with his people. He would be at one with them again. Their sin would be fully wiped away. Throughout the year, it was difficult for people to account for every sin that they had committed. We can connect with this idea to be able to remember every offense that we have made toward God. Their poor memories, just like ours, their self-justification, just like ours, left too many things way unresolved. So on this day, on the Day of Atonement, it was a process for general atonement itself to cover or forgive their sins overall. It was on the Day of Atonement each year that God would give his people a fresh start. Don't we all need a fresh start sometimes? Through the rituals of the day, God would completely remove the sins of the previous year from his people. So first, a definition. Second, we have to recognize that the people would fast, they would not feast. This is a major marker that makes this feast in particular different from the others that we've looked at. The Day of Atonement is listed in a feast in our context, but it was actually the opposite of the way that we understand feasting. There were no tables with food. This was not a day of feasting, but fasting. The people weren't to fill their appetites, but rather they were to afflict themselves. That's a heavy word to read as the text reads. The idea of affliction, it wasn't the self-inflicted or self-induced harm or causing physical pain to oneself, but it was rather a time of remorse, a time of repentance, it was a time to recount the sins of the previous year and to pursue forgiveness and reconciliation for those sins. Um, our friend and scholar at Beeson Divinity School, Ken Matthews, writes that the people would refrain from the pleasures of daily life and the ordinary work of daily life on this day. As an act of regret, they wouldn't eat, they wouldn't drink, they wouldn't bathe, they wouldn't do anything that would institute or would cause joy or fulfillment personally or satisfaction on that day. They would experience physically the emptiness that their sin caused for them spiritually. And this was a really, really serious thing. Whoever did not humbly deny themselves before the Lord for this 24-hour period, they would be cut off from the nation of Israel, cut off, cut off from the family. This identification with the spiritual destitution, the need that humanity, the family of God found themselves in, it was a reality that was inescapable. Anyone could identify with it. They had offended God in their actions and they had the same need for forgiveness. The question was, on this day, would they stop? Would they remember their sins? Would they recount them? Would they stop? Would they remember and recall and actually humble themselves to a place where they would ask for forgiveness and not just recognize it. The pride that would keep a person from engaging in this act, the work of this day, was enough to fully separate them from the people of God that was marked by God's unending mercy. 
Leviticus chapter 16 gives us a full description of what would happen on this day in order to accomplish this complete atonement. This is point number three. On this day, a sacrifice, made, a sacrifice was made and a scapegoat was sent away. A sacrifice was made and a scapegoat was sent away. On this day, the priest would remove his royal-looking garments, his royal-looking robes, and he would put on simple linen clothing. And he would sacrifice a young bull for his own sins, and he would sacrifice a goat for the sins of the people. And then he would take another goat, and he would later take it outside to be with the people of Israel as the nation has all gathered in front of the tabernacle. The priest would then do on this day what was only done on this day. He would step into the place where the presence of God himself actually dwelled, into the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. This is this special wooden gold-plated box that held the the Ten Commandments and some other special family relics that the people of Israel um, held onto. On top of this gold box, There were two angel-looking statues that stood facing away from each other with their wings actually coming to a point at the top. And it was there at the top of that point where those wings touched that God himself would dwell. He would sit. And on this day, the priest, he would walk into the very presence of God. He would walk in with the blood from the bull and from the goat, and he would sprinkle it on the, the Ark of the Covenant. He would sprinkle it on the altar. And this was done in order to, um, to, to cleanse the place, to cleanse that environment of the sins that had been placed before it. The, blood, the priest would use the blood of this substitutionary, the substitute sacrifice to cleanse the space where God resided. After doing this, the priest would take a second goat out to the people. Leviticus 16, 22, uh, 20 through 22 reads, And when he made an end to the atoning of the sacrifice of the holy place in the tent of meeting in the altar, he shall present the live goat and Aaron shall lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area and he shall let the goat go free into the wilderness." The priest would then take his hands, place place them on the head of the goat, and he would confess, he would transfer all the sins of all the people. And in this act of transference, the sins of the people are then laid on this sacrifice, this living sacrifice that is then sent away to carry the sins of the people off in the wilderness to die. This instance is actually where the term scapegoat, scapegoat, Can you say that with me? Scapegoat, yeah. Scapegoat was originated. The blame would be put on the goat itself rather than on the individual or the group. The goat would take the blame and finally put it to rest. Now at this point, the priest has gone in, he's changed his clothes, he's offered the sacrifice, he's sprinkled the blood, he's gone back out to the people, he's transferred the sins of the people onto the goat, sent the goat out into the wilderness. And in this moment right here, the nation of Israel for this moment would stand before the Lord with a fresh start. Their sins had been atoned for, they'd been forgiven, they'd been covered by the blood of the sacrifice and their sins were symbolically carried off in total forgiveness. They received a restored relationship with God through a way that only he had made for them. No other means could accomplish this. Only God could do it. 
This is, this is characteristic number four. It was only enough until the next year. So in that moment, their sins had been atoned for. They had their fresh start, but it was only good for another year. It was only good for the next calendar. The thing about the day of atonement though was that it came every year. On the 10th day of the seventh month, on Tishri 10, it would come around the next year and the year after that and the year after that. The sins of the people would pile up, the whole nation of Israel would gather, the priest would sacrifice the bull and the goat, he would sprinkle the blood on the ark and on the altar, he would go out and transfer the sins of the people onto the goat, he would send the goat on into the wilderness, and then another year would pass. And the sins of the people would pile up and the nation of Israel would gather together and the priest would change clothes and he would offer a sacrifice of a bull and a goat. He would sprinkle the blood on the ark and on the altar. He would go back outside and he would transfer the sins of the people onto the goat and send the goat out into the wilderness. And then another year would pass and it would happen over and over and over again. You can feel the monotony of it. This monotony was a gift to Israel. It reminded them of their continued sinfulness and of God's continued holiness that he made a way for his people. It reminded them that sin brings suffering and death. It reminded them of God's great mercy toward them and that he'd made a way to forgive them. Ultimately, it was intended to point them toward a final sacrifice. The day of atonement, like the rest of the feast, was a model it was a framework for Israel and it is a framework for us today. So for us, it's a new day, but we have the same need. It's a new day, but we have the same need. The day of atonement is intended to help us see at least, at least three things. First, we have a sin problem. Second, God is the only one with the solution to our problem. And third, God's solution is always greater than our problem. So first, we have a sin problem. When we focus in today on what happened on the Day of Atonement, it honestly sounds morose and depressing. The people would fast and remember their sins from the previous year, sins that they had done intentionally or sins that they had unintentionally committed. They would stop and remember and not celebrate, they would confess. They would dedicate an entire 24-hour span to remembering and confessing their sinfulness. When we try to wrap our minds around this concept, for me, I'll speak for myself, it seems pretty difficult to fathom. We spend some time when we pray confessing and asking for forgiveness, or we honestly, we may respond with repentance in the moment by the movement of the Holy Spirit. At the, at the moment that we commit a sin, the Spirit may convict us and we may respond in repentance. And at times we may even have days where we feel like our sins or a group of sins that they haunt us, where we experience feelings of guilt and condemnation, but most often the idea of setting aside time specifically to reflect on our sin is not something that we prioritize. We, I will speak for myself again, we like to think of ourselves as capable and self-sufficient. And our sin, our offenses toward God's, we would rather categorize them as character flaws to overcome or habits to rid ourselves of. The gospel, however, tells us a different story about who we are. The truth about us is, is that we are not capable or self-sufficient and that our sin is not just something for us to overcome or to eradicate. 
The gospel tells us that we have a deep problem. We have a sin problem. And that there's nothing that we can do on our own about that problem. And that if our problem, if it goes unresolved, that it will ultimately lead to death, which is life apart from God. Now you've come in here this morning, um, honestly, probably like me, needing to hear some good news, needing to hear something good, needing, needing to hear the gospel. That's what the word gospel actually means is good news. And this, this idea, our, our problem of sin and that we all have it, it doesn't sound like good news. It doesn't. It's like when I, when I take my car to get the oil changed and I just drop it off, I see laughs, and I drop it off and I go back to pick it up. And what do they tell me? They tell me that I need a full new set of tires, right? Anybody else been there? Thank you for that hand raise, I see that. They tell me I need a full new set of tires. They tell me that I have, I've got a problem. This does not sound good like good news to me because I don't wanna drop the money that it's gonna cost for me to replace the tires that I have thought up until this point are perfectly good. It's a problem, it's an issue, but honestly, knowing the problem is good news, right? Because if the tires are as bad as they say that they are, and they are, and I get those tires replaced, then it's gonna prevent me from having a blowout and potentially ending up in a great deal of harm for myself and for, and for my family. I need to get new tires so that I can move forward. I need a solution to that problem. But first, we have to come face to face with our sin problem. We have to understand it. We have to actually see how bad that it is. Good news is fully good when we understand how bad things really are. Our dishonesty, our greed, our selfishness, our pride, our lust, our addiction, our independence, they're all put us in opposition toward God. Our sin nature and our sinful actions, they're a problem that continually keeps us at odds with God himself. And life apart from God is hopeless. Friends, completely without hope. And we have to understand that we cannot fix this. We cannot fix it on our own. If you're like me and you see a problem, one of the first things that starts churning in your mind is ways to fix that problem. I'm a fixer. And so when someone tells me that I have an issue, the first thing I'm doing is I'm working through the catalog of solutions in my mind. How can I resolve this? But in this situation with our deep sin problem, no self-help mantra, no positive thoughts, no life coach is gonna actually be able to rid us of our sin problem. It is insurmountable, it is too big. Do you feel the weight? It's too big. We may try to justify our sin away or compare our sin away or, just, or um, rationalize our sin away or even hide it. But the truth is, is that the sin is still our problem. And we can respond to our problem, our problem of sin in one of two ways. We can go through life trying to manage and manipulate it, or we can actually turn to the one who has the solution to our problem. This is point two. God is the only one with the solution to our problem. God is the only one with the solution to our problem. God's plan was that the priest would work on behalf of the people. 
he would have to perfectly obey God's detailed instructions for atonement, the first step of which was offering a sacrifice for his own sins, for his sins and for his family's. The priest was human, just like the people. He needed the sacrifice just as much as they did. He had a very specific position with very specific responsibilities and accountability, but he had continual sin just like they did. In this way, it's like the illustration that we as, uh, as preachers get a ton of mileage out of. It's like the pre-flight instructions. Whenever emergency comes, what do you do? You put on the air mask, of your own air mask, before you put on the air mask of the person that's sitting next to you. The priest would care for his own sins before he cared for the prescribed means to care for the sins of the others. Israel, on the Day of Atonement, specifically set aside this time to help them remember their sin problem and then not just sit and wallow and destitute, but then turn to God as the only one who had the solution. It was a whole day, one time each year, dedicated to remembering their problem and then turning to God. Death's solution, God's solution to our sin problem has been and always will be death. Death is God's means for solving our sin problem. Sin always brings death. Think back about this. For Adam and Eve, it was the death of the animals that God used to create clothing for Adam and Eve before he sent his first children out of the garden. For uh, the priests, it was the sacrifice of the bull and the goat to be able to sacrifice for the sins of the people so that they would be forgiven, be cleansed of their sins. These animals, they had to die as a substitute so that the people wouldn't have to. God's solution to our sin to make a way for us to have life with him is death of the substitute. The sacrifice of the priests were for the priests themselves and for the people. They had to be made over and over and over again, but they were always meant, these sacrifices, what we read of, these things that seem so foreign to us, they were always meant to point to a final sacrifice to a final priest who himself would be our substitute and to die. God's solution in the priest and in the sacrifice were ultimately meant to point us today to Jesus because we carry with us the same problem. Our sins pile up by the minute. My sins pile up by the minute, if not by the second. And I need, we need a solution. We need forgiveness. God sent for us a final sacrifice. He sent Jesus to justify those who repent, turn from their sin and believe in him and his perfect life in our behalf and, and living in a way that we never could. His death, his substitution for us, just like these animals on our behalf and his resurrection from the grave, just as the goat was sent off into the wilderness to carry the sins of the people away. So Jesus walked from the tomb, leaving it empty, carrying the sins of the people away with him, never to be remembered again. Through the atonement of Jesus, we're covered by his blood and he carries away our sin. And this, friends, is good news. We are justified. We are made right before God. When he looks down on us who have placed our faith and hope in Jesus, he looks at us as though we have never committed a sin, never committed an offense toward him, and that we have walked in ways of obedience our entire life because of the blood of Jesus that covers us and cleanses us because he is our substitute. The writer of Hebrews helps us see this specifically in light of the day of atonement. If you'll read with me in Hebrews chapter nine, it's gonna be on the screen, verses 11 through 14. 
But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made by hands, that is, not, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats or calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of a defiled person with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish before God to purify our conscience from dead works in order that we might serve the living God. God's solution to our sin problem is Jesus. He is our high priest. He is our sacrifice. He is acting on our behalf as our sacrifice. His blood cleanses and atones for our sin. He takes our blame. He takes our sin problem. And he does it through his life, his death, and his resurrection. If you've been carrying around your sin problem this morning and you feel this separation, this lack of hope and peace with God, if you've been carrying it around and you have never turned to Jesus as the solution to your sin problem, I invite you this morning to stop carrying around something that, can, that you can be freed of. Turn to Jesus, repent, turn from your sin and believe in his life, death, and resurrection for you. You can live at peace with God and you can do it today. Point number three, God's solution is always greater than our problem. God's solution is always greater than our problem. So for those of us who have done this, who have turned from ourselves and turn to Jesus, the question that we must ask ourselves is that do we still believe this to be true? We believed it at the time that we first responded to the gospel, to the good news of Jesus, do, but do we still believe it to be an ongoing solution to our ongoing problem? Or do we think that sin just doesn't matter because it's gonna be forgiven anyway? Our sin is forgiven, but it's forgiven at a price. Jesus died so that we could be forgiven and be free from that sin problem whenever our hearts so quickly turn back to it over and over and over again. Look back to me with, at Hebrews chapter 10. It'll be on the screen as well. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. We can have full confidence and full assurance that we have been cleansed of our sin and we can hold fast to this promise even and especially when it seems like our sin is too much for us to bear. This is good news. If we look at atonement as the, as the concept of reconciliation, we're a people that are reconciled. We, our relationship is made right with God himself. And then Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians how we then are given a ministry of reconciliation. We get to go out and we get to tell people about the problem that we have and the solution to our problem in the hope and good news of Jesus. We're sent out with hope. So how do we respond to this today? How do we respond to all these things today? I recognize that I have a sin problem. 
I know that God is the only one with a solution to my sin problem. And I understand that God's solution is always greater than my problem. So how do I respond today? And I would say that the framework for the day of atonement is our framework for response. First, we react with repentance. We react with repentance. I must acknowledge the sin in my life is a problem. And as I kind of talk through that this morning, the idea of the weight of sin that we carry, there's some of you in this room that the Holy Spirit is using that space to convict you of some things that you may have been trying to ignore. You may need to react in repentance. You may need to take that sin that you know has been there, that you've been trying to avoid or cover up or hide. And you need to take it and squarely lay it at the feet of Jesus. I must not pass by it. I must understand the severity of my sin. And I must ask for forgiveness through the death of Jesus in my place. Two is to receive a restored relationship. To receive a restored relationship. I like to think of um, the after party of repentance being the restored relationship that happens. This is not just a verdict that, is, that has been given. Through Christ, we are uh, clearly declared justified. We are made right, but we are also declared sons and daughters. We're brought into a family through our restored relationship with God by the blood of Jesus. And then third is to remember the promise. We must, must remember that the power of Jesus's atoning, his forgiving work for us is a promise that he, friends, he always makes good on every single time. We cannot outrun God's mercy for us. We must remember this promise. When we find ourselves in places that tell us are too far gone, we remember the promise that the work has been done for us, the blood has been shed for us, and forgiven has been handed over to us through Jesus. I think that we can each identify with one of these three places. If you're here today and you've never turned to Jesus with your sin problem, I would ask you to respond with a prayer of repentance and belief in Jesus today. Or if you're a child of God and you need to respond in repentance to sin that you can't quite seem to rid yourself of, just confess it. Receive the forgiveness that has been given to you through Jesus. Receive the restored relationship. Remember the promise of God's word to us, the truth that he will forgive us and that he has paid the price in order to do it. Let us pray together. God, this morning being faced with the reality that we don't like to see, being reminded of our inability, our incapacity, our need, God, is a hard thing to be confronted with. But Father, I thank you that when we see our need, when we see our problem, God, that you quickly, before time even began, had a plan to offer a solution for that problem. And his name is Jesus. God, so as we sit before you as your people, asking you for forgiveness that you have already purchased for us through the blood of Jesus, God, we pray that we would receive that forgiveness. God, that we would, we would enjoy that restored relationship that we have with you. God, that we would take this ministry of reconciliation that you have given us, that you have applied to our hearts and our lives, that we would share it with our families and take it with us out of this room into the world. God, we thank you for the good news that you are a friend of sinners. And we need a friend like you. 
God, we thank you for Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen.